reading for today comes from Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 through 35. So I'll just give you some time to get there and then we'll start. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, thank you, Jared, for reading that, uh, that passage of God's Word. And uh, thank you to Chapel Street Baptist uh, Armadale for the privilege of being here uh, today. To those of you who are joining us uh, online, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I trust that what we share together, uh, you will feel very much a part of, uh, of what we're hearing and what we're singing and what we're doing this morning, that uh, together as a wider community, uh, we will be rejoicing, from, uh, rejoicing uh, in who the Lord is. Um, it was good to be with you last year remotely, but it's so much better to be with you face-to-face. And uh, in terms of today, it's good to be here uh, on a day when uh, my father uh, in, uh, uh, in Newcastle, where I grew up, will be um, sharing with his home church, Mayfield Baptist, about something of his life story. So I think if I wasn't here with you, I'd probably be uh, zooming in to see what's happening at Mayfield Baptist. But if you're on Zoom, stay here. Uh, don't go to that other one. You can always catch up on that during the week if it interests you. So uh, again, thank you for the privilege uh, of being here. Um, as uh, you've heard, I'm with Barnabas Fund. I'm the Australian CEO of Barnabas Fund. And uh, uh, that's an organisation that provides hope and aid to Christians who suffer because of their faith. Uh, we're motivated in uh, large part by this passage or this verse in Galatians 6 and verse 10, uh, that says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And our special calling is on the second part of that verse, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Uh, as to how we operate, we have a model that works from Christians, uh, through Christians, to Christians. We don't go outside the Christian community uh, for prayer or financial support. Uh, in terms of through Christians, we don't uh, uh, do work ourselves in other countries, but rather we partner 
uh, with uh, Christian churches and Christian organisations in other countries. And that does a few things. First of all, it means that uh, the work that is done is below the gaze of those who would persecute. Uh, it also means that uh, it keeps our overheads very low so that globally our inter uh, overheads are running at less than 12%, uh, so that the vast majority is able to be uh, used. And uh, even though overheads are important in terms of accountability and transparency and those things, it's also important to keep them as low as possible. And the third thing that that model does is it empowers uh, the local church in that area to be the church of Jesus Christ in and to their community. And the third thing is uh, two Christians, and that's again consistent uh, with our calling that our special ministry is to those who own the name of Jesus Christ. In terms of what we do, scrolling around on the screen will be a number of categories uh, under which we fund ministry. Uh, one of the ones that will come up is disaster relief. And I'm often asked, why on earth would you need to be involved in disaster relief? Surely, when there's a disaster, everyone gets helped equally. Well, if we were to think that, that's with our uh, mostly Western uh, mindset. Uh, sadly, in countries where there is a pre-existing bias against Christians, that bias is also applied in terms of how disaster relief's uh, money is, uh, is distributed. And indeed, in some cases, Christians are blamed for the disaster. Now, you might say, how on earth could Christians be blamed for the disaster? Let me give you one example from Kerala in India, just over two years ago, there were some terrible floods and leading Hindus of that area blamed the Christians. They said, if you can afford a piece of beef, you'll eat the sacred cow because you're willing to eat the sacred cow. The gods are angry. The gods have sent the floods. It's your fault. And so in many places, Christians are either at the end of the queue or not on the queue at all when it comes to handing out disaster relief funds. Um, I'm asked, uh, where do we fund ministry? Well, again, scrolling around uh, will be a number of maps and at the top there's a category and uh, then the map itself has a shaded in area showing where we have funded ministry over uh, the last 15 months. And uh, over that time, we have funded ministry in some uh, 65 countries. Uh, when it comes to that one, people say, why on earth would you be funding ministry in the USA? Well, um, praise God, there are some people who have... Um, come to know Jesus as their saviour, they've found a place of safety in the USA and we've been able to help them get onto, uh, onto their feet as part of uh, our convert care ministry. So uh, as the, the, the slide now says, where in the, work, in the world do we work? And the answer is wherever uh, there is a need. Which brings me to the question of how we can respond to Christian persecution. In a few moments, I'm going to share uh, four general ways in which we can respond. But let me first share with you something about two specific needs that exist in the moment, um, in, in respect of which we have uh, some campaigns running, and I'll tell you how you can respond at the back uh, after the service. So first of all, let me just show um, this brief video, and let's hope that uh, the technology works okay. And for those who are watching by Zoom, uh, hopefully you're able to see and hear it as well. Nigeria often referred to as the giant of Africa, is Africa's most populous country and the seventh most populous in the world. It is one of the world's largest oil producers and is considered to be an emerging market by the World Bank. But many of its inhabitants live with a permanent threat of violent death. There has been Islamic extremist violence against Christians in northern Nigeria 
from the 1980s, and especially since the beginning of the 21st century. Since 2015, violence has killed more than 6,000 Christians and forced almost 2 million people to flee their homes. It is worth repeating that number. That is more than 6,000 Christians killed in the last five years. Thousands of others have been maimed, burned or kidnapped by Boko Haram jihadists or Fulani militants. There is a common pattern to the violence. Militants, armed with guns and machetes, storm into a predominantly Christian village and begin indiscriminately slaughtering men, women and children. For example, on the 22nd of July 2020, militants with knives and machetes broke into homes of a mainly Christian village, Kitchener, in the southern Kaduna state, murdering 17-year-old Kifas Monday, 14-year-old Lydia Monday, 9-year-old Jumami, 14-year-old Giwa Thomas, and 27-year-old Living Johanna. A Christian leader said that the attacks are now so frequent that they had stopped reporting them. They said, we seem always to be reporting deaths and attacks, and people are weary of our reports. The carnage has gone largely unchallenged by the Nigerian government. Security forces have failed to stop the violence, and the international media are silent. A church leader lamented, it is as if the lives of Christians no longer matter in the areas under attack. The faith of persecuted Nigerian Christians is strong, but we must come to their aid. Uh, some of that video footage shows um, the effect of attacks that were made even at a wedding uh, and at a funeral. Uh, and so the situation for many Christians in Nigeria is uh, uh, far from certain. And so we're calling on Australian Christians to um, sign an open letter to our Prime Minister uh, urging that he would get the situation in Nigeria onto the Commonwealth Heads of Government agenda. And uh, there's a few ways that you can do that. Uh, firstly, um, uh, there's a QR code. Now, it's really interesting. Whenever I say in a church service, you can, you can use your phone and use that QR code right now um, next to nobody does, and you're probably going to prove me right. Uh, but there is that QR code. In addition to that, at the rear of the, um, at the building, uh, is uh, that same image with a QR code that you can use after the service to go straight to the place where you can uh, sign that open letter. And uh, indeed, if you wanted to do it using my tablet, uh, again, I can uh, make sure that that's available after the service. So that's how you can respond uh, at the moment to a campaign to get the situation in Nigeria onto the international agenda. Uh, we have similar campaigns in other Commonwealth countries like New Zealand and, uh, and uh, Great Britain. Uh, a second campaign that we have at the moment is to uh, call upon uh, the Australian government uh, to recognise the Armenian genocide that happened uh, just before the outbreak of World War I. And uh, many governments around Australia have not recognised that. And uh, there are a number of reasons why we believe it's important for it to be recognised. Uh, one is because um, genocides need to be recognised in order that there can be justice and in order that there can be uh, I guess that international protection against things happening again. Do you realise that in the 1930s, 
uh, Hitler used what uh, was happening or had happened in Armenia as part of his justification that nobody's going to remember what we're doing to the Jews, because who, after all, remembers what happened in Armenia? Um, and uh, it became even more current news last year when there were attacks upon Armenians in Azerbaijan uh, with uh, Turkish support. So uh, we have that campaign at the moment, and again, at the rear of the building, there's, um, there's uh, not that photo, but a, another photo with another QR code where you can go to the campaign site and you can sign a petition uh, to the government. I'll be at the rear of that uh, of the building at that stand, so if you need some help with any of that, I'm happy to do so. So there's just a couple of specific ways that uh, uh, you might be able to respond today. More generally, um, can I suggest that uh, we can respond to the reality of Christian persecution by feeling for our brothers and sisters in Christ, by opening our hearts to the reality, and uh, that can be helped by being informed. I know that a number of you are already in receipt of the Barnabas Fund material. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, again, at the rear table on the right-hand side, everything on the right-hand side, as you look at it, is free. There's a few books for sale, uh, but there's a number of free resources, including two of our recent magazines that come out free of charge every two months. And uh, that enables you to actually open your mind and open your heart to the reality. And secondly, to pray. Uh, and to help people in their prayers, in the middle of every magazine, there is a pull-out prayer guide so that for every day of that two months, there is a specific prayer where you can pray, joining with many thousands around the globe for that person or that country or that situation. Uh, every Sunday, the prayer guide has a more general prayer written in bold, and it is specifically designed that it might be read as part of prayers in a public worship service uh, such as this one. So uh, be informed in your prayers as well. Thirdly, to speak, uh, to be an advocate for the persecuted church. We don't hear about this uh, in our secular media. We, there might be friends and neighbours uh, who have no idea that this is happening. So we can speak informally, but also we can speak more formally. Uh, if you're interested in uh, being a representative for Barnabas Fund uh, in some more uh, formal capacity or more recognised capacity, please see me afterwards and we can work that through. And uh, lastly, to give. I want to say that the most important spiritual weapon we have is prayer, uh, but if you are moved to give financially and you have the capacity to do so, then I would encourage you uh, to give into that leading from the Lord. So that's just, uh, I guess, in a few minutes... Uh, an update, an introduction for those who need an introduction, an update for those who already have an introduction about the nature of the work of Barnabas Fund, and I look forward to engaging uh, with you after the service uh, this morning. For those who are joining remotely, um, if uh, you'd like to engage in some way, if you speak to people associated with, the, with this church, they'll be able to put you in touch with me, and I'd look, look forward to engaging with you uh, down the track. Um, so that's, uh, I guess, the first part of my presentation this morning. The second part is to open God's Word. Uh, Luke 14 has been read for us. Uh, let me lead you in prayer before uh, I turn to Luke 14. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege we have of being here very openly and very publicly this morning. I pray, Father, for those who don't know that freedom, and I pray that they, like we, would know the power and the comfort of your Holy Spirit uh, strengthen and keep each one, I pray, as we seek now to open your word, I pray that we would be truly attending to what you would be saying to us through your word. May your Holy Spirit make that word alive and may we be hearers of your word, but also may we be doers in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, sadly, the, the world, as you've just seen, is uh, increasingly um, hostile to followers of Jesus. Uh, you've already seen a, a short video about something that's happening in Nigeria where thousands of Christians have been killed uh, in the last uh, five years. And you've seen a, um, or you've heard me say that in the last 12 to 15 months, we have needed to fund work in some 65 countries because Christians in those countries are disadvantaged, oppressed or persecuted uh, because of their faith. Now, I want you to know that there is much that we can learn from the persecuted church. There's much that we can learn from those who suffer uh, because of their faith. For example, we can learn a lot about forgiveness. When I was with you remotely last year, one of the stories I uh, shared with you concerned Asia Bibi, uh, the Pakistani Christian woman who was on death row for more than eight years for a crime she didn't commit. Uh, she was just one uh, Christian who was framed for blasphemy against the Islamic prophet, but she was freed in late 2018 when Pakistan's highest court of appeal determined that there was no credible evidence against her that she had been framed. Now, she and her husband and her children have found refuge in Canada where they are living in relative anonymity, and uh, I pray that they will have a, a, a long life in Canada and a fruitful and a free life in Canada. Well, Asia Bibi was interviewed about her ordeal uh, last year and she was asked whether she holds anything against those people who had framed her, those people who made up allegations that cost her eight years on death row, eight years away from her husband and eight years away from her children. Can we really fathom what that must be like? Uh, and not only eight years away from her family, but in circumstances that it nearly cost her her life. She was asked, do you, um, do you hold anything against them? And her response was this, she said, I'm not angry at all. I have forgiven everyone from my heart and there is no hardness in me. There is patience in me because I learned how to be patient when I had to leave my children behind. Isn't that an amazing testimony? Now, how would we be? What are the, the hurts that we hold on to that are so much less than what this woman has gone through? You see, there's much that we can learn about forgiveness from the suffering church. But more generally and specific to today's focus, we can also learn about the cost of discipleship. And in our passage from Luke 14 that was read earlier, Jesus himself addresses the cost of discipleship. I want you to know this, salvation is a free gift, but it's a free gift that will cost you your life because Jesus demands no less. Look at the first sentence in today's passage, one that uh, gives us the context for the teaching that follows. Uh, Luke tells us that great crowds accompanied Jesus. Now, have you asked yourself, why would Luke bother telling us that? What does that sentence say about the context and about the things that follow? And I'm going to spend most of the time today talking about this one sentence, because it's a powerful sentence. You see, what Luke's telling us is that Jesus wasn't taken in at all by popularity. Uh, Jesus wasn't seduced by big numbers. Uh, Jesus wasn't taken in uh, by the things that take us in so often today. You see, we tend to gauge success uh, by numbers, don't we? 
the more successful sporting teams are the ones that draw the biggest crowds to the match. Uh, the most successful music bands are, of course, those who sell lots of their music and have thousands wanting to cram into their concert, uh, concerts. And surely, the bigger the church, the more successful it is. Now, on that last one, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying anything against large churches. My wife and I belong to a very large church in Queensland. I'm simply saying don't assume that bigger is necessarily better. But we're taken in by those things. But whereas our culture is easily seduced by big numbers, by popularity, here we see that Jesus, seeing that he was drawing big crowds uses the opportunity to speak to the big crowds about the cost of discipleship. You see, he, Jesus was never taken in by popularity. He was never hypnotised by the appeal of big numbers. And we see this in other places, not just in uh, this passage in Luke. In Mark 1, for example, we see that after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, word got out about this great healer and so many gathered to be healed that night. And then what's more, by daybreak, uh, the following morning, more had gathered, but the disciples couldn't find Jesus. So they went searching for him and eventually they found him in a desolate place praying. And they say, quick, come down, uh, come down, everyone's waiting for you. It's as though they're saying, can't you see it's happening? The thing that we're on about, it started uh, and people are here for you. Uh, come on down, heal them, it's really starting. But Jesus amazed them. So that Mark tells us, um, Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns. Instead of going down and meeting their needs or their demands, let's go to the next town because there I might preach also for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You see, Jesus is taking that opportunity to say, I'm not here to meet the demands of crowds. I'm here to fulfill my father's mission for me and I won't be deterred. And in John's gospel, we see something similar, where in John 6, Jesus had fed the many thousands who came to see him, and he taught them about the bread of life, the response to which, as John records in what we know as John chapter 6, verses 60 and 66, when many of his disciples, not the 12, but the others, uh, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And John tells us after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, we, we would regard Jesus as a failure. You're drawing the crowds and instead of using the crowds to get more crowds, you're confronting them with truth as a result of which some are passing away, some are moving away, some are falling away. This is crazy by our thinking. But I hope you're getting the picture that Jesus wasn't taken in by popularity. He wanted those who followed him, firstly, to know what they were getting themselves into, and secondly, to give him their undivided total devotion. So that in today's passage, Luke tells us that at a time when large crowds were gathered to follow Jesus, his response was to teach them about the cost of discipleship. And this wasn't just true of people living 2,000 years ago or for the early church. And this isn't just true today for those who live in foreign lands. You see, even here in Australia, let me be more local, even here in Armadale in the New England Highlands, Jesus urges us all 
to count the cost of following him. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. We're called to love Jesus above our own families, above our possessions and our dreams, indeed, even more than life itself. And perhaps the key sentence in today's passage comes just before Jesus illustrates his uh, point with two illustrations. So the two illustrations, firstly, he says, uh, who would build a tower without first planning the construction and making sure that you had the funds to build it properly? And the second illustration, he says, what king would engage in a battle without first considering uh, the army and the weapons at your disposal and counting the prospects of winning against those, um, the resources of the opposing army, counting the cost. And in the sentence immediately before those two illustrations, Jesus says this, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is God's word, not just to people who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago. This is God's word to you and to me today. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And after illustrating his point uh, in verse 33, Jesus says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, the cross wasn't some cute thing that uh, people wore around their necks or on their wrists. And I'm not speaking against that. I'm just saying that it wasn't uh, some kind of cute symbol in those days. The cross was an implement of slow and painful death. And just as Jesus rejected the appeal of popularity in favour of his mission that drew him to the cross, so he calls us to reject the trappings of this world and effectively to die to self in order that we can truly experience the liberty of living for him. Let me say that again because I think that's very important. He calls us to reject the trappings of this world, what I would call fake life, effectively to die to self in order that we can truly experience real life, the liberty of living for him. And yes, there may well be ways in which we here in Australia, just as many thousands in other parts of the world, will suffer the pain, the rejection and the derision that Jesus himself experienced as he carried his cross to the place of the skull where he died for you and for me. I like this quote that I found online. Since our Saviour suffered the rejection and agony of the cross, if we follow after him, we must be prepared for the same treatment. If people revile us for being Christians, we must bless them in return. We should never do anything to provoke persecution, but if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we must entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let me say that last bit again. We should never do anything to provoke persecution, but if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we must entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. They are words that um, uh, I heard reflected in one of the prayers this morning. And uh, thank you for those prayers. You know, when we speak with persecuted Christians, they rarely ask us to pray that the persecution will cease. Instead, they most commonly ask us to pray that they will be faithful in the face of persecution because they know how powerfully their faithfulness testifies to the claims of Jesus Christ. 
And I want you to know, uh, as we start to wrap this up, that if we are faithful, if having counted the cost, we are faithful living um, undividedly uh, attentive, devoted lives to Jesus, whatever might happen, there is a legacy of faithfulness. Let me tell this story. Just over 15 years ago, I found myself in the Islamic Republic of Iran. In those days, I was pastoring a Baptist church in Sydney and I found myself in Iran. And there are many stories that I could tell you, but today, just let me tell you one. Uh, we were in the city of Shush in the southwest of the country, not far from the border with Iraq. Now, the city of Shush is an ancient city known in Old Testament times by the name Susa. And it features in two prominent parts of the Old Testament. You see, it was in Susa that Esther was queen. And even today, you can walk uh, among the ruins of the palace where Esther played a pivotal role in saving the Jewish people in exile from destruction. But Susa was also where Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. So that we read about that in Daniel 6, where Daniel uh, served King Darius. Now, I don't propose to read that account today. I know that many of you will be familiar with it. And if you're not, I encourage you to read Daniel 6 uh, later today. The basic facts are that um, Daniel served the king faithfully, which made the local leaders very jealous. So they tried to dig some dirt on him, as we would say today. But they couldn't find anything at all. Indeed, we are told in Daniel 6 and verse 5, these men said, we shall not find any grounds for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What an amazing testimony. We will not be able to find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. If people look closely at you or me, what would they find? Would they be able to say, we can find no fault, except I don't like the fact that he or she is a Christian? Anyway, these uh, local leaders then tricked King Darius into making a law that prohibited people from praying or to making any petition to or prayer to anyone or any God other than the king for the next 30 days. What did Daniel do? Well, what would you do? You see, Daniel was faithful. So even though he knew the penalty, he went into what we would call his bedroom and he prayed. My wife, late last year, was... Uh, taking devotions at the Christian school where she works and she was talking about Daniel and one year 10 student piped in, why didn't he just fake it? Is that what you would do? Would you fake it? Remember, Jesus said that we're to count the cost. Well, Daniel didn't fake it, he was faithful and I really like the way the Bible puts it in uh, Daniel 6 and verse 10. When Daniel knew that the law had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He didn't go out into the street and made a, make a great show of defiance. He simply went about his devotion to God as he usually did by praying in what we would call his bedroom. But that was enough to break the law. And even though the king, Darius, realised he'd been tricked, the law was the law, so into the lion's den Daniel went. But Daniel was delivered by the grace and power of God. You know, if you were to visit Shush today, in addition to visiting the palace ruins, you can also visit 
Daniel's tomb, where because it remains a sacred place for Iranian Muslims, you will see local Muslims removing their shoes and entering the tomb before bowing down to pray, giving thanks to their God for Daniel. Now, when you're placed in that situation, or that type of situation, there's no guarantee that you will be delivered in this life. And the legacy of your faithfulness may not be an enduring monument that survives for centuries. Indeed, you may not even want that. But I want you to know that if we have counted the cost, if we have resolved to follow Jesus and we give him our entire devotion and we are faithful to him, whatever comes, that God is faithful. Your legacy may be in the lives of your children or your church family, but faithfulness leaves a legacy. That's one of the reasons I love the book Heroes of Our Faith, uh, one of the books that's uh, at the rear table for sale along with other resources. Because in that book, Heroes of Our Faith, you can read about and you can remember and you can give thanks to God for the lives of men and women and even children who were faithful unto death and who have left a valuable legacy. Now, I know that time's short, but please bear with me as I read uh, from just one page that records something of the lives of a teenager who lived and died for Christ in nearby Indonesia just 20 years ago. His name is Roy Ponto. The fact that he is being spoken about today in this context is by itself something of his legacy. So on page 32 of that book at the rear of the, the room, it says this, young Roy was 15 years old when he bravely lost his life for Christ in Indonesia. This country has been notorious for its anti-Christian violence fueled by Islamist organisations. Roy lived in a particularly violent part of the Maluku Islands called Ambon, which has seen attacks on churches and the houses of Christians and numerous killings. On 20th of January 1999, he was part of a 125 strong group of young people from the New Covenant Christian Church attending a Bible camp at Patamura University. When the event had come to an end, many of the young people needed transport home. Pastor Miki Sanyakit visited a local village to find a truck to hire, and upon leaving, he and his party were attacked by a local mob. Pastor Sanyakit and his driver were killed. A short time later, the remaining youngsters were confronted by fighters from the Alaska Jihad terrorist organisation at the gates of the university. Armed with machetes, spears, knives and clubs, the fighters began hunting down the defenceless young people whose desperate attempts to hide were futile. Roy was targeted by one of the attackers and when asked who he was, the teenager answered, a soldier of God. The attacker slashed Roy with a machete, almost severing his arm. After being asked a second time, Roy replied with the same answer. He received a blow to his right shoulder, leaving a big gash, and this time the attacker shouted, what is God's soldier? A soldier of God is ready to die for Christ. Was Roy's final answer. At which the machete flew upon him one last time. And as he died, he screamed, Jesus. The fact that I've been telling Roy's story today is part of his legacy of faithfulness. 
what I said to those school students. My wife asked me to go and speak to them. And uh, I told them some stories of people who'd been miraculously delivered. And then I read them Roy's story and they were shocked. Because this wasn't an old person a long time ago in a faraway place. This was a young person not that long ago in a country very near. And I was able to say to them, if God is God, if Jesus Christ really is his son, if Jesus Christ really is the way, the truth and the life, if Jesus Christ really is the only way to the Father, then whatever happens to you and to me in this life, God is worth it. And Jesus demands and deserves our undivided devotion. Jesus urges us to count the cost of discipleship and faithfulness has a powerful legacy. So let me close by reading the last couple of verses in um, today's passage. Salt is good, says Jesus, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil uh, or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Join me in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you that um, you know what each of us needs to hear from those words today. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit will make us each one aware of what we need to hear where we need comfort, that we would be comforted, where we need encouragement, that we would be encouraged, where we need correction, that we would submit to that. Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit, may we truly count the cost of following Jesus and may we be found faithful, whatever our circumstances may be. Father, we want to be hearers of your word and we want to be doers also. Amen.